Hey guys, Joe Bonamassa here. Welcome to Live from Nerdville. Today, my special guest is Bob Gruen, legendary New York rock and roll photographer. You've seen Bob's images all over the world in magazines and in books. He's a hell of a nice guy. And again, like his book says, he was in the right place at the right time. How you doing, Bob? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. By the way, I love the Gruen watches clock behind you. Uh, yeah, that was a treasure. Yeah, <laughs> A friend of mine gave that to me. It's a, uh, I collect that kind of stuff. I, I collect like, uh, you know, watch, you know, point of purchase signs and, and uh, I love that era. It's such a, such a, such I, I a actually cool. have no, I have no contact with the family, no relation. I wish I did. I'd have a lot of watches. I do actually have a Bruin watch, right? but um, not from them. Uh, right. <laughs> I love it. First of all, th thank you for uh, taking those wonderful pictures uh, no, my for pleasure. my, my, uh, the, the new album in New York City. I know we're, it's tough to photograph the moment when everybody's in a small room with a mask on, you know? Right, yeah, the bit with the mask was difficult. And also, you gotta be a bit subtle, like you were in the process of recording. Right. And uh, to not disrupt that process and still be able to take pictures because you are in the room and there's only two other, three other people. Right. Um, and I must say, your session was one of the most professional recording sessions I've ever been to. Oh, really? Uh, Thank you. You were so organized. You were so spot on and so, you know, aware of the time and what everybody was supposed to do. There was no outside chatter. There was no joking around. I yeah. think at one point you made a reference about something that happened the night before. It was almost shocking because it was the only thing outside of recording that anybody said all day. Right. Uh, it was so professional. It was really. Um, and then it was kind of funny because. You know, I was in the room there and um, taking pictures and so on. At one point, somebody came in and put ear, uh, earplugs down next to me. Right. And I thought, well, actually, I'm doing fine. I don't really need them. Right. But I didn't realize the next track you were going to go into the overdubs and the guitar yeah. part got really loud. Right. I was like, where's those earplugs? <laughs> But it was really fun. So thanks. And, yeah. And thank you for doing it. It was, it was a real honor. And, you know, it, it's a weird thing with me. I like when I'm in the recordings, too, I get very anxious, like like it, like a live gig is is a totally different realm, you know, where you take your time and it's like an adventure for the audience studio. I'm like all business. I'm like, let's let's you know, yeah. it's like I, I, I still come from the school. Time is money. Time is money. Absolutely. Absolutely. And at the hit factory, it's a lot of money. <laughs> it is a lot of money. And, and even though we got the whole day, you know, we're, yeah. you're going to charge us for the whole day either way. I still come yeah. from that hourly rate, you know, process. So, you know, um, you know, it's it's it, you're, you. Thank you for the book, by the way, your, your brand new oh, book, thanks. the right place at the right time. And I mean, that that kind of sums up, you know, an entire body of work because like you've captured such great images of iconic, you know, musicians over the years, you know, and, and it's like, and, and it's a nanosecond, it's just a click, right. you know? <laughs> and so are you the kind of photographer that takes a lot of pictures and then wades through it? Or do you wait and try to capture the right <laughs> moment? Um, I, I generally wait um, and capture moments uh, because I come from the old school uh, mm -hmm. Nowadays, you can just click away and just delete the chip and do it again. Back right. then, you paid for every single frame on a negative. Every right. roll of film costs money. Right. And every extra photo costs money. And if you got to the end of the roll, you had to think, do I really want this picture enough to pay for a whole nother roll of film? Right. So, um, no, I never clicked away. And um, in fact, Billy Joe Armstrong talking about my photography mentioned one time that in front of the, his, his, the audience, a lot of photographers just clicking away all the time and hope to get something good. Mm. But I actually watch what's going on and right. kind of anticipate a moment because that's the hard part about photography. You have to realize what's going to happen before it happens. Yes. Yeah. You know, um, and anticipate the moment. But I'm watching and getting like that moment because I'm not just clicking away. Uh, I always try to get the feeling and the passion in the pictures. Right. So um, that's more important to me, you know, than just clicking away um, and get a whole bunch. Because um, right. I kind of feel the moment and, you, and I want my pictures to show that feeling. I want, and actually, that's the luck of, that I've been able to do that. A lot of people say they turn a page in a magazine and they see one of my pictures and they get a feeling from it and they recognize it as one of mine. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's the thing is like you've been to so many live shows. It's like you're part of the live show. You know, you're 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 kind of a 
joining the band for the night and and yes. kind of going with the ebbs and flows and it, it takes someone who loves music to do that you know because it's like anybody can just take one of these and just you know take eight thousand photos and wade through all the good ones but to know that and to be that instinctual about about you know what's going on on stage is is uh it's it's important that's why your images are iconic you know mm -hmm. um well like i said i wait for that moment to capture the feelings Yes. So it's more than just the color of a T-shirt or something. <laughs> exactly. You know, one of my favorite Bob Gruen photos is um, it's uh, I, I believe is it uh, it's David Bowie, Tina Turner sharing a bottle of champagne, and With Keith, Keith Richards looks and and it's like you go like what was you 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 could almost it almost puts you in that party. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it kind of encapsulates everything about that moment and that period of time in the 70s and 80s when it was like everybody's in new york everybody's hanging out you know the <laughs> after show and and it's this this you know is before social media and and those those artists trust you like you would never you never well that was interesting it was 83 and i actually started my career uh, my first photo pass ever was at uh, actually happy birthday bob dylan uh, it was a Bob Dylan was playing at the Newport Folk Festival. I had nothing really to do with him, but I got a, a photo pass for that year in 65 when he first played electric. Ah. But my career really started when I met Ike and Tina Turner in 1970. Right. I took a really uh, dramatic picture of Tina and mm -hmm. then ended up getting to meet them and working with them and becoming friends with them and traveling for two years with Ike and right. Tina Turner. Right. Uh, and then working with them throughout the 70s, even after they broke up, I, I worked with them separately. Right. Uh, and uh, Rolling Stones, I saw on and off a bit, not as much, but David Bowie, I did some sessions with. Mm -hmm. And so that night by 83, I actually knew all three of them separately. Right. So the fact that they were together and I was there, they were very comfortable with me. It wasn't like somebody intruding. It was like, oh, that's Bob. And yeah, yeah. On, from different occasions, they all knew and trusted me. So uh, it was very comfortable. But yes, it was a wild scene. That was when Tina really made her breakthrough comeback. Um, you know, after breaking up with Ike and uh, having her solo album, The Private Dancer was coming out then in the 80s. Uh, she was finally getting her own career going. And to have David Bowie and Keith Richard, uh, you know, celebrating with you, that's a pretty good night. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I can imagine, I'm like, you know, what's it like? I mean, like, you've had so many iconic images. It's like, when you're developing, mean, at that point, I'm assuming it's film. You're, 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 you're in oh, the yeah. dark room with the, the red that light. And you're 20 years before they had digital, yeah. yeah. I mean, there as a photographer, there's got to be a moment when you're develop, you see the photo developing, and you're like, "Oh God, this is going to be good." But when I saw Ike and Tina at a place called Honka Monka Room, right? Uh, Tina finishes her act dancing off stage to a strobe light, right? And I had just like a couple of frames of film left, and I thought, "What would happen if I opened the camera for one second, right?" And just captured several flashes, right? So I got this picture, which just captures the energy and the excitement of Tina. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, uh, and then I, I took the picture with me a couple of days later. They were playing around a few places in New York. So we went to see him again. And I brought the pictures to show my friends. And as we were walking out, one of my friends saw Ike Turner walking from one dressing room to another and literally pushed me in front of Ike and said, show Ike the pictures. Right. And he stopped and said, well, actually, she literally pushed me into the rest of my life. Right. Because uh, he stopped and he said, that's a good picture. I got to show this to Tina. And the next thing I knew, I was in the dressing room talking, and Tina Turner was telling me she liked the picture. Yeah. And, um, and so I started traveling with them, and that introduced me to all kinds of other people. And, yeah. um, and that basically started my career. And, you know, um, back in those days, like, you know, you were forging relationships with the artists. You know, you had, you know I'm sure you had to go through several managers. I mean, I'm sure you had to talk to, you know, Peter Grant to gain access to Led Zeppelin and... and uh, actually, later... Like it, it's because uh, I was lucky with uh, Peter Grant. You wouldn't want to really negotiate with. That was difficult. No. Um, yeah. But I worked a lot with Rockstein magazine mm -hmm. in the 70s, which was um, sort of a fanzine. I mean, we worked with a lot of magazines, Cream and The Enemy. And actually, Lisa Robinson was the journalist. She was the rock critic for the New York Post. Right. And that was uh, syndicated to about 150 mag newspapers across America. And right. also the enemy in England, right? Um, and that was really very, you know, legit uh, mainstream in a sense, and that got us a lot of photo passes. 
Yeah. Uh, but also we made Rock Scene Magazine, which was something we did on our own. Uh, Lisa Robinson, Richard and uh, Lenny Kay and Danny Fields. Um, and it was kind of a fanzine, sort of right. a fancy fanzine because we got no advertising. Yeah. Because uh, we only put in bands that we liked, uh, not necessarily bands that record companies would pay advertising for. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones, but we also had a lot of new bands like the New York Dolls or the Sex Pistols right. when they first came out. Right. Um, and so that got us a lot of access. And it was actually Lisa Robinson who got me access to Led Zeppelin. I didn't have to talk to Peter Grant. Um, <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would have been more difficult. He was uh, not a nice man. <laughs> you know, um, uh, I met Lisa in like 1988. I was playing uh-huh. the I, I, I was sitting in with a guitarist named Danny Gatton at the Cat Club. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she, she came up to me. She goes, I'm, I'm Lisa Robinson from the New York Post. And I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I'd re- I, yeah, I remember her from like reading all those kind of, you know, like you said, the magazines. And I recognized her name. You know, one of the things I've always, you know, uh, wondered about photography. It's, it's like, especially in the music side, you had to have come from a musical background. You had to have been a fan to mm-hmm. a endure all that all that you know stuff the bs to get backstage and the yeah, photo passes yeah, yeah. what was what was you had to want to be there <laughs> you had to want to be there you know because you know you know uh you know birds are easier to shoot they have less egos you know um, they also don't have a, a name and likeness for the copyright <laughs> exactly you know what um what was what was your musical background what what kind of like what started you on like i just love music and i and i and i love photography and how how did you connect the two dots well i learned photography from my mom um, when i was very little it was my mom's hobby she liked to develop and print her own pictures just family snapshots and things right she wasn't really into it as an art form she just liked i think saving money <laughs> you know? yeah yeah and doing it herself. and she liked the process of doing it herself you know so when I was about four or five and I was too big to go to sleep early, but too little to leave alone in the house, mm-hmm. she took me into the darkroom with her and I started learning how to do it. And oh, that's why I took out the Tina Turner picture, because it is that magic of when you see the picture develop in the in the tray. Yeah. And and I do remember the moment I saw that picture of the Tina Turner because it was, you know, it was a chance. Like, would this come out? Would this possibly work? to get five different pictures in one. And I remember seeing that in the developing tank and going, oh my God, this picture worked, you know? And it's right. that magic as you just see a blank piece of paper turn into a, a photo. Yeah. Uh, so I was hooked when I was very, very young. And, uh, and then rock and roll was invented in my lifetime. I, I remember, what was it? I was about 11, I think in 1956, laying on my dad's stomach when Elvis Presley was on uh, right. Ed Sullivan. I remember, you know, Elvis Presley coming on, and there was a whole big controversy because they weren't going to show him below the waist because he moved his waist to, to you know, his pelvis was too right. fast and too sexy, you know. Yeah. Um, so we all wanted to see that, you know. Right. right. Um, but that's, uh, you know, when I came up, I remember uh, actually in 1963 when I graduated high school, um, I spent one semester in a college in Illinois, and the day I got there, I saw Chuck Berry on a flatbed truck. Right. Uh, having no idea who he was, but I never forgot the song on my dingling. <laughs> right, thought, yeah, right. That's that guy. I remember hearing that song. <laughs> yeah. Um, so rock and roll was just kind of came up as my life uh, came up. You know, I was a teenager listening to a little ra- transistor radio under the covers. Uh, Murray to Case, Swing and Soiree. Right. Uh, he used to have the Submarine Race Watchers Club where you would tell a girl you're going to go watch the submarine races and go park by by the water and pretend you're right. watching the submarine races. You know? Right. But yeah, yeah Murray the Case, Swing and Soiree, and uh, the WMCA Good Guys, it was all on the radio, uh, the rock and roll. I mean, um, that, it, that's what I grew up with. You know, um, when Dylan went electric in 65, what, you know, you were there, what was the vibe like at the festival? Like, like was, was it like, Oh my God, he has just ruined his. Career. I mean, we we all now know it's the seminal moment where yeah. folk became rock, and and it was as ballsy as can be. <laughs> but I would imagine on the day of the show, it was a or, surprise. It was. It, it, <laughs> you're like, who is this Paul Butterfield? Who's this Mike Bloomfield? What is this racket? Well, you it know? wasn't even that. I mean, you didn't know who the guys were. It was just the right. fact that he had a band at all because mm-hmm. he was a folk singer with an acoustic guitar up until that moment. Um, 
And it was, you know, a lot of controversy. People say a lot of people booed and there was a lot of booing, but there was also a lot of cheering. And right. there was people yelling at each other because people just weren't ready for a change for something different. Now, it wasn't the first time an electric guitar was played at Newport. Uh, yeah. People pointed out that Muddy Waters had electric guitars. Right. Um, you know, I think Mississippi John heard a lot of people play electric guitar, but they didn't do it with a rock and roll drummer and bass player with a beat. And right. so the fact that he came out was like, wow, and went right into rock and roll. You know, guys said to Abraham. Yeah. And, um, and people were shocked because they weren't expecting that kind of intensity of rock and roll. Um, and the freedom that you get from rock and roll. That's always been one of the themes of me is that rock and roll is all about freedom. It's about the freedom to express yourself very loudly in public. Right. And before that, it had been rather quiet, folk music. We were expressing our feelings, but they're doing it quietly. All of a sudden, here comes a drummer and a bass player and a guitar player, and they're loud. Yeah. Um, so there was a very controversial in the audience. Um, I don't judge things. So to me, it wasn't like, oh, my God, what's he doing? It was like, yeah. I was actually thrilled just to be down front. I had no money. I, I managed to talk somebody into giving me a ticket. I had no pass or anything. It was complete bullshit. My mom's friend had given me a letter saying I represented a PR agency, which meant nothing. Right. Um, and I, I just went to the box office and asked for a photo pass. And they said, you can't have one. And I wouldn't leave until they gave me one. Right. Um, and I just bought them. So, uh, so I was just thrilled to be there. But I do remember this sound of controversy, cheering and booing. And what's odd is I never heard that sound again until Sinead O'Connor played at a Bob Dylan tribute at Madison Square Garden. And right. it was a week after she had ripped up a picture of the Pope on TV. So she was very controversial. And she came out and it was that same kind of cheering and booing. Right. Where everybody was like, yay, boo. And they just didn't know, you know, half the audience loved her, half the audience hated her. And that's what it was with Bob Dylan. And to me, and I've always said, I think you just said it too, it was kind of the announcement that rock and roll was the folk music of America. Right. That it wasn't all Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger apparently was very angry about it backstage. Yeah. In the years to come, we've heard all these other stories about what was going on. But to be there that night was very exciting and, and uh, quite a statement. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like, you know, to me, I put that moment up with when Hendrix plays the Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, like the who breaking up the gear at, you know, Monterey pop and right. You know, things, you know, six minutes of time changing. We're still talking about it. Right. <laughs> it's so <laughs> funny. A couple of songs that we're still talking about. It's still talking about. It. And I also think too, you know, as a photographer, you know, I know now it's like you get a photo pass and it's all done through PR firms and management. And it's like, you get, you get three songs to encapsulate right. the band. I mean, back when you were shooting these 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 iconic artists, you were getting you were uh, the Tina Turner shot. Well, that, it changed in the it changed in the eighties when the music business got so corporate. Right. Uh, in the early days, in the seventies, bands were thrilled that somebody was interested and would come down and take their picture in the first place. You know, and right. if you put them in a magazine, that was amazing. Uh, right. But all of a sudden, by the early eighties, mid eighties. As merchandise became a big deal, bands wanted to control their image. Right. And they came up with the idea that if you only took pictures for the first couple of minutes, you didn't have that many images to show. And they thought somehow that would help to control it. Uh, we had some arguments with managers back then. There was They started giving you a contract. When you got your photo pass, you had to sign that you were only going to use an image for a certain magazine. Uh, and some of those contracts got ridiculous. There was one where the manager actually said that they would own the copyright of anything that you took that night. You had to actually right. supposedly sign this away to them. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, and it just got stupid. And, and actually we were arguing one time with a manager about that and uh, telling him I wasn't going to sign my copyright away, you know, just to yeah. be able to take a picture of somebody. And they said that it would make it easier if they wanted to sue somebody for bootlegs. And I said, do you understand that a bootlegger has never bought a photo from a photographer? Like they yeah. don't do that. You know, right. why would a bootlegger give me money? <laughs> right. You know, yeah, they're already right. stealing from everybody else. They steal from me, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, generally, they can just take the free publicity picture from the record company, put that on a shirt, and that's what they sell. They right. don't make a deal with a photographer. So it was really a, a, a misjudged idea, you know, to limit people to the first three songs. Um, and part of it also was that there were more and more photographers, so they did want to kind of limit the number of photographers because 
a guy comes out to sing to an audience and all of a sudden there's 20, 30 people right in his face, you know, right, right in front trying to get his attention. It was very distracting. Yeah. Um, personally, I'd rather have the last three songs. Mm-hmm. Right. Because at the end of the show, everything's going on. All the lights are on. Everybody's, you know, the people are, you know, getting that climax moment. Right. At the beginning of the show, most artists are running back and forth trying to get everybody's attention. Yeah. Uh, I'd rather wait down. till after the, and then about the fifth song, there's a power ballad and it calms down and you get some nice portraits. And then after that, uh, right. and usually around the eighth or 10th song, they pull out a trick, you know, the big silver thing or whatever floats down from the sky, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and if you miss that stuff, you're missing half the show. Right. So the first three songs, uh, it really, it changed it for me because it just got so frustrating. I wasn't really interested. Right. Because I'm not interested just in documenting what shirt somebody was wearing on that particular night. Right. Uh, I want to get that passion, that freedom, that moment when everybody's yelling, yay, and nobody's thinking about paying the rent. Yeah. I want that to come across in my picture. So, um, you know, it it, it just brings out that that release that you get from music. Yeah. And 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 it also, you know, like they say a picture is worth a thousand words. It's it, 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 it. you know, like now with social media, there's there's so many images of an artist. They're on mm-hmm. video. They're doing this, and it's the necessary evil of 2021. But right. back back in in the formative years of rock and roll, one image you would go, "That's who Chuck Berry is. That's who that's who Jimmy Page is." You know, yeah. and and you'd idolize this image. You'd have it on your wall, and you'd go, "Okay, this is this is what." stardom is it's it was like such a it was they were so powerful because it it, it, it may have captured an out-of-tune chord but you didn't yeah. know that right you know, right in your mind your fantasy would be like this this is the greatest show i've ever seen and the band could have been terrible that night but it but it but it really does encapsulate what it meant to the the spirit of rock and yeah. roll and blues and yeah and everything well a lot of people told me like the picture of led zeppelin standing in front of the airplane Mm-hmm. Like here's four long-haired guys with their shirts open, and they got their own airplane. Ta-da! Um, yeah, and that you know inspired a lot of people. I, I remember Dave Bryan, the piano player from Led Zeppelin, said he saw that. I mean, from Bon Jovi, uh, he saw that picture. He said, "I want that. I want my own plane." <laughs> right, know? right. And a couple of people I know actually achieved it. Not everybody, but uh, but it's a goal and it's a feeling. It's like a, you know a success kind yes. of thing. You know, I mean, and you know. Your career is like you've documented bands at the very, very peak of success, like 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 Led Zeppelin in front of the the, the seven oh seven, going look, you know, look how yeah. look how big and influential we are. But then also the the stuff you you shot at CBGBs when mm-hmm. when when the it was a knee jerk reaction to the opulence of rock and how and how kind of grandiose it had gotten. <laughs> And, right. and it got stripped back to its bare bones and just anger and a message like the New York Dolls, you know, classic photos of yeah, them yeah. and, you know, the Sex Pistols and Sid and Nancy and all that stuff that was happening. <laughs> did you know, how did you, well, how did you become hip to the fact that there was a scene like that in the village going, this, this could be the next big thing, or it's just a bunch well, of bands that were local? You didn't really know it was the next big thing, but you knew it was fun. Um, right. And funny mentioning Led Zeppelin and the New York Dolls, because I actually remember going with a record company executives to Philadelphia to a Led Zeppelin arena show and an after party and then back in the limo and then up the, the highway through New Jersey back to New York. And all I was thinking about is, can we get to the Diplomat Hotel before the Dolls go off stage? You know? Right, right. Uh, and they would play late. So we got back like 2.30 in the morning and the Dolls were just going on. Right. And to me, that show where you're in the audience and you know, you're mingling with the people was so much more fun than sitting in a stadium seat, you know, two blocks away from somebody down there about this big, you know, on a stage. Right. Um, and I remember seeing that, actually seeing the Rolling Stones at Madison Square Garden who were always fantastic. But then going downtown to the little club, The Bitter End, yeah. and Patti Smith was playing. And in fact, when I walked in, she was singing Time is on Our Side. Right. The Rolling Stones right, hit. Yeah. And it just, you know, to me, it was so much more fun downtown. Right. And everybody interacting. And it was on such a more personal, you know, real human level uh, instead of the big arena style corporate level um, yeah. that I thought, yeah, time is on our side. <laughs> yeah. And this is getting better. 
but as far as uh, foretelling it, because people have asked me that, um, I don't know why I knew that I had to take pictures at CBGBs. I just felt it was important. It was not at the time. There's a famous quote that um, Clive Davis uh, once told Lisa Robinson, you know, don't talk about those downtown bands. Nobody wants to know above 14th Street what's going on down there. Right. And then he came down and signed Patti Smith. Right, <laughs> so right. Maybe right. he did want to know. Yeah. Um, but at the beginning, uh, the bands were so bad. It was right. just about having a beer and hanging out with friends, you know, while right. these bands kind of rehearsed in front of you. Um, and But they were friends, so I was taking pictures more because they were friends and because with Rock Scene Magazine, right. we were making up these stories that, oh, these bands are fun and everything. And, uh, and what was funny was people believed us. Uh, right. They moved out of Kansas and they came to New York and CBGBs became a place. Um, but there was a night, I think they were playing the Heart of Glass, uh, Debbie, you know, the Blondie Band. Mm -hmm. And the place was packed and the music was perfect. Mm -hmm. And it just hit me one more. I still remember the kind of epiphany, like looking around going, holy man, but this is not a bar band anymore. Right. This is like good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. this, people are going to like this music. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was kind of like, oh, wow, imagine that. <laughs> right. You know, and... Um it was an interesting, you know, um, you know, clash of of styles too. The the, mm. the the downtown scene was, you know, Blondie, you know, was punk adjacent, but they had a pop sensibility to them. And then like the Sex Pistols would 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 all they wanted to do was either piss you off or get you talking about them. It was like it was just yeah. it was all it was all about spectacle and, and total what, spectacle. What you know, I mean. You know, if you heard a Sex Pistols record and didn't know what they looked like, would have had the would have had would have it had the impact that it had. Oh, what a question! Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? If it was just oh, yeah. check out the record, and you're like, okay, well, cause, yeah. Cause I, I met them first because I knew Malcolm. I, I met Malcolm when he came to New York to help. Uh, he, he tried to get the New York Dolls to wear his clothes to sell his clothes, but he found that they right. broke up already. They were falling apart, so he saved them. Actually, put Johnny and Jerry in the hospital revived the dolls for a couple of months to sell his clothes. But that's when I met Malcolm. And then about a year later, it was the first time I went to Europe and Malcolm was one of the only people I knew. Right. Uh, and he introduced me to the Sex Pistols and had me take some pictures of them. So a year later I came back and the record was coming out and he gave me a copy. I went to a friend's house to play it and uh, we put it on the turntable and it was so noisy. I mm -hmm. called Malcolm and said, is this a test pressing? Is this done? You're gonna mix this, right? Right. I mean, this isn't the final record, right? Right. And he said, no, that's it, mate. And I was like, you gotta be kidding, you know? Right. So it's funny that you mentioned that because back then when I heard it, I thought it was noise. Now it's anthems, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and to me, it, it's the marriage of the sound and the image, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. That's, and that's, that's where you came in. You know, you came in, you, you put a, you know, like if you look at like Pink Floyd, you know, or some of the prog bands in the 70s, a lot of times you wouldn't even know what Peter Gabriel looked like or, or, mm -hmm. or, you know, or, you know, an Emerson Lake and Palmer was like some like gigantic spaceship on a record. But, right. you, know, right. you know, when you saw those, those early club shows, you know, and those pictures that you took of the dolls and the sex pistols, you could feel the, the energy and you go, okay, now I get what I'm hearing on the record. You know, it, yeah. it makes the connection going, okay, this is what I'm buying into. And, yeah. and it, it explodes after that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine hearing it without knowing what they look like. That was actually an interesting point to me, how much the image uh, of rock and roll, the image of people means. Because, you know, people often said rock and roll is, it's not just the music. There's, you know, haircut and attitude. Right. Yeah. Um, and I realized it because I had a, actually a doctor I had once mentioned that he was in a band and, right. in New Jersey when he was in college. And I went home to kind of Google it and see what it was like. And I realized that before I wanted to hear it, I wanted to see it. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see, was he wearing the purple hot pants or, you know, right. or did they look like Led Zeppelin or did they look like, you know, right. a conservative group, but you wanted to see what they looked like. Uh, and then I would hear what they sounded like, but I was more interested in what was their image? You know, who were they in that sense? Right. Yeah. And it really, it really is a, a, 
it, uh, uh, kind of shines a light into who they are as people. And, 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 and you kind of, you can kind of see the ones who are very authentic about it. And the ones that are just like, well, I'll just put on this jacket. Cause I think it makes me look cool. You know? Yeah. People ask me, what do I wear for a photo session? I said, well, whatever it is, sleep in it the night before, you know, don't buy right. a brand new jacket and show up with something that looks like you walked out of a store. Right. Right. Know, wear exactly. something that looks like you. I usually tell people to wear something they would wear to a party if they were hoping to look good. Right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> right. But something they're comfortable with, something that's them, you know, don't try to uh, invent a personality for the photo. <laughs> right. When you're, I mean, um, I've gotten to know, uh, uh, I used to be uh, na neighbors with John Lydon. Um, oh, I was we're here I was, in New York? Or I was in I'm California. We, California, yeah. He had, a, he had a house next to mine. And, oh, wow. And, and, I, and I, I just remember literally walking out one day and taking out the trash and he was pulling in with his Volvo and I go, that's John Lydon, you know? Yeah. And he was a very, you know, and, 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 and uh, Steve Jones, I got. Oh, uh, yeah. And I've got to know him as a very nice gentleman who, right. who, and I started to think about it and I go, maybe, just maybe the laugh's on us because yeah. they're very well-spoken, but you know, with John, it's like, he's very well-spoken. Then I, I would make conversation with every once. I didn't know him very well. And then he would, and he would just, then he would like flick a switch and he'd look at you like, like on those, you know, he goes, you're the guitar man, you know? And I'm like, yeah, um, yeah. some of that was a character that he played. Yeah, for. he's got a character. And, and it was funny, when, the first time I met him, he was throwing out all these one-liners. I thought he was the most obnoxious person I ever met. Um, right. and, and I understood why they call him rotten, but he was doing it on purpose, it seemed. Right. And, to, and it didn't really affect me because I didn't care. You know, he, could, I didn't, he wasn't insulting me in that sense because I wasn't affected by it. Right. So by the next day, he'd given it up. It was like, oh, hi, Bob. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. And we've always been kind of on a very friendly basis. And um, and then I see him. He does. There's a click. And, and he has that persona uh, that he does in public. He's very good at it. He's the most obnoxious person if he wants to be. Uh, yeah. Where Steve is a very funny person, too. Yeah. Um, and because uh, I remember meeting them first. Malcolm had me meet them in a club. And that's when Johnny was all kind of obnoxious and uh I thought that was kind of weird. Like, wow, what a weird guy being purposely right. obnoxious like that. Right. Uh, like Bill Strummer said that he had the band the 101ers and they opened for the Sex Pistols. And mm -hmm. the first time he saw the Sex Pistols actually play, he couldn't believe that they were being so obnoxious on the stage because Joe said that he came from the school of music where you try to entertain and you want the audience to like you. Right. And that he couldn't believe that the Sex Pistols seemed to want the audience not to like them. Right. That they acted like I hate you and you can hate me too and fuck you all. And I was like, whoa, you know. Right. right. Joe was like kind of surprised. And I was surprised by that. But the next day when I went to the loft, Malcolm told me to come to the loft to take some pictures. Mm -hmm. And I walked in, and I think it was Steve and Paul was sitting around, maybe uh, Glenn. And he said, Oh, hey, mate, how you doing? Uh, care for a spot of tea? Yeah. And it was like the most normal English people you could meet. You know, I thought, well, yeah. there's nothing weird here. <laughs> you know? Right, right. But well, the press, they did good in the press. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they were able to, they were elicit a visceral reaction from you. You either loved them or you hated them. Yeah. And you didn't know why, you know? Yeah. What was, what was, um, what was uh, photographing? I know you've been asked this a million times, but I have to ask it. Is, okay. is what, 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 what was photographing Sid and Nancy like? Because you got some definitive. I actually don't have pictures of Sid and Nancy. I have pictures of Sid and I have pictures of Nancy. Uh, I knew Nancy before she went to England. Right. Uh, there was no reason really to take pictures of somebody who was a friend of Sable, who was basically right. a, a prostitute and, and stripper. And I, I, I didn't waste film on people I couldn't actually sell a picture of, you right. know? And, right. and uh, I was friendly with Nancy. She was um, what they call a, you know, a hooker with a heart of gold. You know, she, she was really nice to a lot of musicians and she was like a, a nurse to me once when I had some teeth out and she came and brought me some medicine. Right. Um, so I always had a, you know, like Nancy. And, but when she went to England, it was like she got off the plane and she suddenly had an English accent and yeah. she became this other person. Um, Sid and Nancy, when I saw them together, especially when they, because on the tour, Nancy wasn't there on the tour. Uh, yeah. I went across America with the sex whistles on their bus. Yeah. Um, so I have a lot of pictures of Sid. 
but when they came to New York, I remember when they were in the first night they got here, they were in Max's and, and Malcolm had given them 10,000 pounds, like, like uh, in pound notes, like a thousand pound notes. They had a wad of bills this thick that was all pounds. And you can't buy anything in New York with pounds. It's like in Europe, maybe you can spend dollars, but in America, you can't spend other funny money, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was asking me, Bobby, cab driver pounds. Yeah, no, you can't. So she was saying, Bob, can you lend us 20 bucks so we can get back to the Chelsea Hotel? We got all this money, but nobody will take it. Right. And then she said, come over and take our picture. And I looked at her and I said, Nancy, you guys are a wreck. You know, why don't you get some sleep? Call me in a couple of days when you look better. Right. I didn't know that that was a look. I mean, to me, yeah. they looked like they were chunkies, you know. Yeah. And, and I wasn't going to promote photos of friends of mine looking like that. Right, uh, exactly. I'm really sorry now that I don't have a drawful because Sid Nancy got awfully popular. Um, but you know what happened? Uh, after the Sex Pistols tour, when the Sex Pistols broke up, which was quite surprising, uh, and I had 70 rolls of film from the tour, and all of a sudden, nobody was interested. When they huh. broke up, they were over. Right. Uh, literally, my Sex Pistols picture are in the bottom drawer in my file cabinet because we never had to go there right. for six years. And then in 84, 85, um, Alex Cox made Sid and Nancy. Right. And he got the up and coming actor, um, Gary Oldham, who is right. the most crazy, but most charismatic, crazy person in Hollywood. Yeah. And he gave Sid this incredibly lovable personality. Right. And all of a sudden, the sex business, and especially Sid Vicious, became the biggest punk stars ever. Um, but that's not Sid, that's Gary Oldham. Right. And most people, I mean, there's very, very little actual footage of Sid. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a picture of him that uh, Julian Temple did where he's in a chair in front of the woods and he's kind of nodding out doing an interview. Uh, there's an interview in the Chelsea Hotel of him and Nancy where he's kind of falling over on top of Nancy. He's not really right. talking. Right. Um, so the only actual footage of Sid walking, talking and being Sid and Nancy is really uh, Cole and uh, Gary Oldman. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Um, it's not Sid and Nancy. Um, there's, a, there's a place in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, called Kane's Ballroom. You were Kane. probably there. You, you're, you're, I remember it well. In fact, somebody yeah. got me the t-shirt because it says the house that Bob built. <laughs> Bob, yeah, the house that Bob Wills built. And uh, I mean, I've been playing, you know, I probably did 20 shows there since the 90s, since I started. And they, uh, they have the wall. And oh, they, that he punched or something. He punched. They still got, <laughs> and it's like this. It's like this iconic. It, it reminds <laughs> you that of who has come before. You know what I mean? Right. Everyone from Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys to Sid Vicious punching the wall. You yeah. know, and yeah. it's and it's one of the things. It's like if you know if if Latvian polka was being played at CBGBs. It wouldn't right. have been the same. It wouldn't have been the same. Club. Yeah, it it probably was. It was kind of, CBS was that kind of place too. You never know who you were going to show up with. But I remember in Oklahoma, actually, there was a group of religious people across the street. It was in the snow. And they had this big, long banner that said, God, life must be rotten without God's only begotten. Right. That right. was Oklahoma for us. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't even see Sid Banks the whole. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine the Sex Pistols in the middle of the country in the late 70s could could definitely ruffle some feathers. Well, that was Malcolm's idea. Malcolm did very well with that. He wanted to do it with the dolls, uh, but they didn't survive long enough because um, right. he took them down to Florida and then Johnny and Jerry went back on the dope and it just fell apart. Right. But Malcolm's idea was instead of bringing a band like most people would come to New York and they play at CBGBs because that's where the music business press would see everybody and would write them up. And Malcolm didn't want the press, the, you know, the jaded journalists uh, to have opinions. He wanted to take it to America. And so literally we opened up in Atlanta. I think it was a Chinese restaurant that was kind of a disco, you know, or a right. club at night in a mall, a strip mall. Uh, it was the most unusual place. Not, uh, Kane's was probably the most sort of established. Although Randy's Rodeo in Texas was also a pretty established place. Um, but none of them had had, I mean, there was no punk rock. There wasn't even the name punk rock yet, actually, in 78, I think. Maybe it was just being called punk. But um, it was a new, different kind of music. But those places had country music, and they were rowdy. Uh, I think Randy's Rodeo had uh, the fishnet in front of the stage, so the, all the audience that would throw the beer bottles wouldn't hit the musicians. 
Uh, right. They needed that for the Sex Pistols too, but it wasn't put up for the Sex Pistols. It was already right. there when we got there. You know? Yeah, right, right. That was for anybody. But, uh, yeah. but Malcolm's idea was to play in front of people who had never seen this before. Yeah. Uh, and he did really well with that, bringing them to places like Cane's and the audience was like, what the hell is this? You know? Right, right. And I think in Texas to where uh, Johnny Ryan started calling everybody faggots, uh, that didn't go over very well. Um, you know. He knew that though. He knew that. But he time. knew that he was trying to rile it up. I mean, Malcolm's idea was to cause chaos, cash from chaos. Right. Uh, don't do things the normal way. Don't just have fun. Let's go crazy. Right. You know, he wanted to be crazy. He wanted it to just explode. And, um, and it's interesting in retrospect, because I found out so much later, but being on the bus, it was very calm. There was no chaos on the bus. Right. We were listening to Don Letts reggae tapes, right. uh, which were mostly dub tapes, drinking beer, maybe a little pot. It was just kind of very mellow reggae style, floating across America, always in the door would open and chaos would ensue out in the club. Right. <laughs> um, it, it was a weird phenomenon. It, uh it's usually like that though it's it's sometimes it's like you know the images tell you that this it's 24 7 just this 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 kind of orgy of you know depravity and 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 drugs well, also back then musicians were who they were that was their lifestyle mm-hmm. they didn't plot it out in junior high school that when they were you know in a certain place they were going to wear a certain thing and they were going to do a record I mean, right. Malcolm talked to me about one time where he was meeting a band and they already had their whole thing. They were going to record the record and then break up and do something else and do the merchandise. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, the New York Dolls didn't dress up for a photo session or a show. That's who they were. That's They dressed right. up like that to go to the deli. Right. You know, go yeah. to the corner. Um, that was who they were. I mean, a lot of bands like that, like Blondie, I mean, they didn't get dressed special, you know, uh, maybe... Well, the thing is that actually for CBGBs, you had to always have kind of a new outfit when you played. Because in the early days of CBGBs, it was so small, everybody was playing to each other. Right. Uh, Hilliard opened his bar. A couple of musicians found out about it. We started hanging out there. And each week, one of the bands would be on stage, but everybody else, Patti Smith, the New York Dolls, the Miamis, the Shirts, the Tough Darts, everybody would be in the audience. And then the next week, the Tough Darts, Robert Gordon would be on stage and Blondie and everybody would be in the audience. Well, right. then the next week when Patti Smith was on stage, we've already been hanging out together all month. They had to wear something different that night. Yeah. You right. know, and because, the, because these bands played like every other month or every few weeks, because there weren't thousands of bands trying to play, you probably had to write a new song because we were impressing each other. Yeah. You know, yeah. and uh, but on the same time, it wasn't so competitive that if your amp broke, somebody wouldn't just lend you an amp. Right. Exactly. You know, because there was there was no reason to be competitive. Nobody was going anywhere. There, nobody was selling any records. Nobody was making any money. If yeah. you got a free beer, you know, girl bought you a beer. That was a good night. You know, if you right. had her phone number, it went home. That was a great night. You know? Right. But that was the reward. Nobody's looking at it as a business mm-hmm. in a sense at CBGBs. It was sort of you escaped from the high school where everybody thought you were either a nerd or crazy. And um, I mean, everybody in CBGB was just either from the crazy crowd or the nerdy crowd. Right. Uh, you know, the cool football players weren't there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we became our own kind of cool. Right. Uh, it's kind of amazing if you had seen how drunk everybody was <laughs> like back in 1977 and then to see somebody like Legs McNeil being a successful respected author right uh, it, it really shows how people can go through those changes and grow up and be okay you think uh when the record companies and the corporate element of the music industry came in and started okay come on come on patty come on new york dolls and 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 it became more more corporate and there was money involved i mean because it's yeah. like it's like it's like we're playing for beer or right. and then now we're we're in theory, millionaires overnight. Like, do you think that ruined the movement, so to speak? Where, where then it became like, well, you know, I want to be, you know, it, it, people were more- I don't, I don't know if it ruins the movement. Um, Cause first of all, there wasn't a lot of people who made a lot of money. Uh, when you talk about CBGBs uh, and the bands that came out, you talk about the Ramones, Talking Heads, Patti Smith, um, Television, Blondie, um, Living Color, uh, 
yeah. you start to run out after about seven or eight super famous names. Right, right. There's not 12, you know, yeah, there's yeah, not right. 15. And CBGB's was open seven days a week. They had about seven bands a night for 35 years. So there's a lot of bands you never heard of. Uh, what CBs was good for was that it was a place where people could learn how to play. Right. Because uh, Hilly would let anybody play. Hilly was unlike other club owners in that he wasn't trying to make a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, he just wanted to have a couple of beers and watch TV. Right. Uh, it was kind of like if your parents go out of town and your uncle's in charge and you can yeah. go down to the basement, do whatever you want. But if you make noise, you break something, he's going to throw you out. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, otherwise, he didn't really care what you did. Um, so CBS was a great learning place in that sense. Um, and it, but it, like I said, it wasn't really competitive because nobody expected to make it. The fact that some people did was sort of a surprise. I don't think it's spoiled the scene in the sense because what it did was it kind of inspired other offshoots um, all over the, not just the country, but all, all over the world. Right. Um, I remember my mom lived in Chapel Hill and we found a little place down there uh, Oh, I'm going blank on the name, but it, it was like this narrow little entranceway and there's this hidden little club. Um, and they're all over the country, you know, right. where, you know, college kids or, you know, high school kids who get a band together, find a place that they can play. And the club owners, you know, willing to let them play for the price of a couple of beers. You know, everybody right. will bring at least six friends who buy beer, then you're in. You know? Yeah, right. You bring, bring and, your own and they're all over the country and it just inspired people. I mean, of course, now the world's exploded and that you can make a quality recording in your bedroom. Right. Um, and the fact that you can buy quality equipment. I mean, back then. It was harder to start a band. Yeah, and harder to even to get a guitar, to get an amp, to get a place to play, to get friends to play with you. Um, it was all a lot harder. Now, every high school kid's in three bands. You know? right, yeah, yeah. You know, um, you know, I, I, I lived in New York City the first time um, just at the tail end of when a musician can go go to New York with a guitar, an amp and a, and a, a dream yeah. and, and hustle enough money to pay the rent. I used to live on ramen noodles and peanut butter and jelly. Still one of my favorite meals to this day. <laughs> Not and, together. <laughs> no, 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 no. Just, oh, okay. all, you know, everything's a la carte. And, yeah. um, but it was, it was, you could, you know, yeah, rents have never been, New York City's never been a cheap place to, to, to right. live. You could find apartments that you could live and hustle. You get on the, yeah. you got your subway card and you're maybe doing a session, maybe you're doing a, a pickup show or whatever. And you're just yeah. eking well, it there's out. There's so many things going on. You can find something to do. Right. And this was, I moved out around 2001, the end of 2001, I moved to Los Angeles. And um, it, to me, it became when my, my crappy apartment on the Upper West Side, proving there are bad apartments on, in good neighborhoods. Um, <laughs> right. Anyway, <laughs> he's like, oh, you live on 83rd in Columbus? I'm like, let me tell you something, okay? <laughs> okay, it, it, you, may, you may think it's like Seinfeld, but it ain't like Seinfeld. It's not, no, okay. no, those people on TV, they got a budget. <laughs> yeah, um, and I remember moving out because the landlord told me, like, listen, you know, cause he was like, you knew I was a musician. I kept quiet, so I didn't disturb any. It's like, I, I got an offer and it was quite, you know, it was like quadruple what I was paying. It was like, you know, yeah. went from like a thousand or twelve hundred dollars a month to like almost four grand. Yeah. I'm like, I can't afford to do this. I was barely hanging on as it as it was. Yeah. And the thing I miss about New York City is because it's gone from a very artistic centric place where bands could start, musicians, artists, photographers, everything, and you can eke out the rent until you kind of get some traction. Now it's kind of been gutted where there's not, there's the scene is kind of dwindled. Well, times, times are different in general. Mm -hmm. And I know like the Lower East Side, for instance, has turned into an NYU dorm. Right. Um, and it's very expensive. But the, I, most young people that I meet are living out in Brooklyn. Right. And often maybe uh, two or three people to a, an apartment in order to share it. But when I was 20, I had roommates. <laughs> That's how you yeah. get an apartment. You know, in fact, right. I had three roommates. And between the three of us, we got evicted anyway because we couldn't afford the rent. Right, right. $25 and three of us couldn't come up with it. 
Right. Um, <laughs> um, that's how kids do it, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's changed. And I think that in fact, out in Brooklyn, there's a thriving scene uh, because the clubs are not just rock bands, but they've expanded into all kinds of what they call performance art, right? Which can be anything, you know. I mean, God knows what you know what people put on it and they call rock entertainment. <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, but it's very eclectic. But I, I do think that people can come to New York today. Um, it's just that they don't have to because they're on their computers at home, work from home. You know? right, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if you can interact with a band from you know Kansas. I, I think you yeah. got to be in Brooklyn. You got to be somewhere um, where people gather and exchange ideas with each other. 100% and and 100% where you know you 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 there's a movement there's other like-minded people you know and mm -hmm. it's like strength in numbers and i always say you know it's the same thing about right. the blues it's like the more people involved in the blues the more young kids interpreting the music in whatever way they want the yeah. stronger the scene is you know you can't just right. have pie, one pied piper and then nobody behind you're like hey, where is everybody you know right <laughs> You know, yeah. Um, talk to me. I know you've been asked this a million times, but but probably the most bootlegged image of all time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I can see it. I can see a collage of it uh, to your left on the upper left. Oh, um, right. Yeah. John Lennon, your friendship with John Lennon. And I used to own two or three of those New York City T-shirts that you'd buy in tourist shops in right. Times Square. <laughs> but uh, correct me if I'm wrong you gave John that shirt and took yeah. those photos. Yeah, the first time I ever saw it, it wasn't in a shop or anything. I wish I knew who they were. Uh, there was like two guys selling them on a blanket on the sidewalk. Right. I think they printed it up themselves in, you know, in a basement in Brooklyn or the Bronx, wherever they came from. Right. Um, it's become so iconic that I wish I knew who they were. Right. Because um, I remember it kind of stopped me short because the graphics were just so strong and so simple. Yeah. You know, it's just a kind of a curve and, and it's, it's just kind of a, a feeling of the skyscrapers and the solidness of New York and the base of the, the bedrock of New York. It's just summed up in that typeface somehow. Yeah. Uh, it just struck me. And so I, I bought one uh, and I cut the sleeves off because I thought it was a bit more of a New York kind of look. Right. And I immediately liked it. And the next time I saw him, I bought like three or four more because I started wearing them all the time. And of course, I was in the dark room. I'd get the developer on it. Yeah. So I'd have a new shirt every day, but it's the same shirt. You know, I mean, right. the same design. I had six of them eventually. Uh, and eventually I started giving them to my friends. I remember I gave one to my agent one night when I was on the way to visit John. And he was in a record plant on 44th Street. And I was walking through Times Square and I saw the guys. So I picked one up. And, and his actually, it's a little rough. I cut the sleeves with my buck knife you know? right. <laughs> um, and gave it to him. And, uh, and he said, thank you and so on. And what was odd was that it was a year later. That was in August of 73. And then later, like in the spring and winter, he had that lost weekend right. uh, for 18 months where he got drunk in Los Angeles. Um, oh, and so it was literally a year later. Right with Harry and everybody uh, getting drunk. So it was a year later, he was back in New York in a different apartment, still separated from Yoko. And uh, he asked me to take pictures of, which um, ones I don't have them up here. Um, there was a series that we did of his face for the Walls and Bridges album cover. Right. Uh, and after we took those pictures, he said, well, let's take some more pictures so we have pictures for publicity. Right. And I started taking a couple. We were on the roof of his apartment there uh, up on the east side. And... Uh, and I said, well, do you still have that shirt I gave you last year? And to my surprise, he said, yeah. And he knew right where it was. Right. And he wasn't a person who carried a lot of baggage, you know? Yeah. So the fact that he had that in his suitcase out to L.A. and back and knew where it was. Right. Uh, it, I knew that he liked it. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, and I said, well, we got the whole skyline here. Why don't you put it on? And, and he looked great. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I had the feeling at that point that he would probably stay in New York. Right. He seemed so comfortable in New York. That's why I felt he would be comfortable in the shirt. Because in that year, you know, he'd been in, he came to New York in 71. Mm -hmm. And then the first couple of years, they tried to kick him out of the country. The Nixon administration was afraid. Uh, he was talking about peace in a time of war. Right. And they felt that that was a bad thing and tried to kick him out of the country. Um, and then when he was allowed to, and so he wasn't able to travel at all. Um, but then when he was, when he got his green card, he was able to travel. Um, 
I wasn't sure he was going to stay in New York. The first thing they did actually was went to Japan to visit Yoko's family and so on. Right. Uh, but when he was out in LA getting drunk all the time, even then I thought that, well, maybe he'll go to Hawaii. I mean, it's kind of nice in Hawaii. If right. That's the yeah. money. You get a nice house, you know, it's nicer right. than the city streets, but the city streets offer a, a creativity, a, in New York, nothing, you know, there's, there's always something open. If you want to make something and you need a part or you need something at three or four in the morning, it's there. You go get it. You know, somebody's open selling. Um, and there's all the other artists that you can interact with and get ideas from. So um, when John was in L.A., I didn't know if I'd ever see him again. Mm -hmm. But when he came back to New York, I had a feeling that he was going to stay. Mm -hmm. And so that was part of the reason I asked him to put on the shirt. And I was very comfortable using that picture because. Yeah. Um, I really thought that he felt comfortable in New York. Um, you know, in England, uh, he was hounded as a pop star. The English press was, is particularly nasty. Uh, I always say if they can't say something bad, they won't say anything at all. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and yet in New York, he could walk out and take a taxi and go visit somebody, be a normal right. person. And he really enjoyed that. Um, he enjoyed walking around the corner and going to the coffee shop and just sitting and reading the newspaper like a normal person. Right. Um, and so I really felt he was going to stay in New York. Um, mm -hmm. And he did. <clears throat> exactly. You know, um, I mean, that's why I talk about it when he, uh, you know, Yoko said, don't blame New York for what happened to him, that he was killed going home. Right. Uh, um, he died in New York because he lived in New York. Right. And not because of New York. It's funny, like a lot of people, including myself, the first reaction when you heard he was shot was like, oh my God, New York is so dangerous. Who would do that? But the fact that whoever did it came from halfway around the world, right? they would have gone to wherever he lived. And that's why I always think John lived here. He didn't just die here. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, New York, um, it, it, well, in the late 70s and early 80s, it was, it was, a, it was a rough and ready experience i remember going down there in 86 or 87 and, and times yeah. square wasn't a place you would go like my no my, took not at night especially no but um it, it's you know one of the things you know about those relationships that you've had as a photographer you know mm. um how do you how do you how do you manage that catalog now as a as a as a, as a professional photographer because mm. like, like i said earlier I mean, it's it's probably the most bootlegged image oh that one time. yeah um well, I've kind of gotten to the point where uh, I have to appreciate that that's the price of making something that people appreciate around the world. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who are under 30 don't understand the word copyright. Right. Uh, they think anything you can see, you can have. Yes. Um, they don't realize that publishing something, you're supposed to pay for it. They think, well, I'm just sharing it. Right. You know, um, we kind of don't really like that word share. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but actually, my archive is what I'm is helping me to support me now. We sell prints. Uh, we license the pictures for magazines and for a lot of documentaries that are out there now. People are constantly contacting me for uh, pictures. It's uh, amazing to me that all my work at CBCBs is becoming so important because at the time, it was just Lisa and Lenny and Richard and I, you know, we were having fun, um, right. you know, making this little rock scene magazine, but we really didn't think it mattered about 14th Street. <laughs> Right, right. Um, and uh, and the fact that uh, they're making documentaries about that stuff, we get calls every week for, um, you know, different obscure bands from CB's days. From, there's a big play on Blondie now. There's a big documentary out. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of that, like when Kiss came out, it was like this cartoon characters. Like, that's yeah. not even a band. That's like a cartoon, you know, and then they become the biggest thing on the downtown scene ever, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that image. But people don't realize they came out of that same scene as the Dolls and Blondie and everybody else. You know? Yeah, I, I, uh, I spoke to Paul on this uh, this show, and he's a friend. And and uh, what, what 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 I love your image of it was super early Kiss, and I think jeans and he looks like he's like in a cheap Sears and Roebuck suit, but he's got the he's got the oh, makeup on and uh, dress to kill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a funny one. Uh, it turned into quite an iconic picture. Um, I'm a rare photographer, and then I've had several different sessions with Kiss where they're not wearing their official Kiss outfits. Right. Almost like Superman wearing a different costume, but not being yeah. Clark Kent. Still being right. Superman, but in a different... You don't ever see them in a different clothes, you know? Right. Um, but that was part of... Cream Magazine had the idea to do a photo novella. 
which is kind of a comic book made of photographs. Right. And um, and the idea was that Kiss was like in a secret identity in the business suits. They were going to work. And the theme is that they found out that there was going to be a concert by someone named John Cleveland, mm-hmm. which was cleverly disguised John Denver. Right. Uh, and they felt that was the most boring thing and that they had to save the world with rock and roll. Right. And they go out and they put up posters around town for a fake John Cleveland concert. And everybody shows up and instead Kiss comes out and right. they save the world of rock and roll and they have an orgy at the end. And uh, for some reason, the picture of the Kiss orgy is one of the most visited pages on my website. Right. <laughs> that seems to get the searches more than anybody else. But um, and in fact, it came out in the magazine and Kiss saw the picture in the magazine because we went to a subway where they're commuters and they're going to work with newspapers and they're finding out about this. And then we just did one picture on the sidewalk where they're discussing what to do about this threat from a boredom from John Cleveland. Right. Uh, right. And, and kiss saw the picture and they went, that's it. We love that picture. And they were, it was like, we did the picture, I think in November or October, it came out in January. They were recording at electric Ladyland. Mm-hmm. I had to go back to electric Ladyland with the suits. Uh, Gene and Ace are wearing my suits. They didn't have suits at the time. <laughs> Paul and, and Peter actually had their own suit. Right. Uh, and a- actually, Gene, if you look at it, he's wearing my wife's clogs, which That's make right. him. And, and because Gene's like three sizes bigger than me, he's busting out of the suit. I mean, right. the suit comes up to here on his arm. Yeah. Uh, he looks like the Hulk. He's breaking out of the yes. suit. Um, and and the clogs make him look like a, a monster, you know. Right. Right. Uh, Anyway, they saw it in a magazine and wanted to use it. So I had to go to Lucky Wayland and do a whole photo session as if they were recorded wearing those suits. We had pictures of them at the microphone or at the control board, all wearing the dress to kill suits. That's great. And, and by the way, I didn't mean to call your, I didn't know it was your suit that he was wearing. I didn't mean to call your suit cheap. I'm sure it was oh, a nice suit. Oh, sorry. So, actually, it was a $5 suit I got on Ludlow Street. Nowadays, it's not cheap. It's vintage and it's probably $5,000. But back right. then, it was five bucks. <laughs> Um, before we wrap up, um, is there, what, what bands excite you now? Like, like who have you shot in the last five years that you go, this, these, these guys. I'm looking forward to see Well, Green Day was supposed to go on tour last summer. Uh, and I just published a book. Uh, I've actually known Green Day for 25 years, which kind of surprised me how time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, uh, but they're really a fun band, especially live, uh, but especially great band to hang out with. Uh, I was lucky that they liked me and I liked them and we got to hang out a lot. So I just published a book of Green Day last year. Uh, unfortunately, the tour guy can't, uh, right. but they're coming back this summer. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, there was a band from Ireland known as The Stripes, mm-hmm. S-T-R-Y-P-E-S, that was right. uh, about 16 years old when they started getting attention. Right. Um, so by the time they were 21, they'd already been together 15 years and they broke up. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but they were great. They really had, it was like seeing the animals when they were 16 or, you know, early Eric Burden kind of, you know, real yeah. R&B sound. They were great. Um, other than that, uh, my son's a singer-songwriter, Chris Gruen. Got to give him a plug. K-R-I-N, nice. Chris Gruen. Uh, he's going to Europe in September, opening for Jesse Mallon. Oh, great. A, a New York guy who's a very good friend of ours. Uh, I go see every show he does. Uh, he did really good during this lockdown with uh, on, online shows. Right. Organizing all, you know, starting like other people in his apartment, but branching out and getting guest people and interviews. And, and he really developed a, a real online presence this year, uh, Jesse Mallon. Um, other than that, uh, you know, I'll go see Iggy Pop or Debbie, you know, my old friends and stuff. Yep. There's not a lot of young people I know about. Uh, I don't going to Brooklyn is kind of a road trip for me, <laughs> you know? yeah. even though it's, 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 it's not that far, but uh, right. at my age, the, the allure of hanging out in a bar with 20 year olds getting drunk is kind of lost. It's, you know, lost the luster. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, with the sex pistols, I was just turning 30 and, and they were like, you know, in their twenties and we're all drinking beer and having fun. Um, and the clash was smart. They were fun to hang out with because, Joe and, and Mick, you can have really good conversations, especially Joe. Uh, we'd be up all night talking into, into the sunrise um, with Joe Strummer. But um, nowadays, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's different. Uh, I'm it's not really looking to hang out in bars like I used to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Iggy Pop, I use his, I stole his line and I use it when people go, what's it like living in Los Angeles? And I go, it's a sunny place for shady people. 
right? Because <laughs> he, Iggy's remember, got the best lines. I remember he was speaking about Miami. I think it was on, um, uh, it was on some television show. And he goes, Miami is a sunny place for shady people. Yeah. Uh, and he goes, I think, and he goes, I think he said, but they're my kind of people. And I go, that's, that's his, that, that you couldn't describe LA better. It's a sunny yeah. place for shady yeah. people, but they're my kind of people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a little too bright out there for me. <laughs> it's changed a lot, but um, I've been out here 20 years and, and uh, I, I, I still love it. It's, I, I, I still, I, I still love it. And, you know, I came here because it was cheaper than New York. Yeah, yeah. And musicians, a lot of musicians I knew that were in New York 25 years ago were now out here. Then now I've moved to Nashville. Nashville is now Mecca. And now Nashville is getting expensive. You know, musicians can't find a a, a place to live for more than five years before it gets gentrified and the rents go up. Well, because as soon as the musicians move in, the place becomes cool and then rich people come in and then it's uncool. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's uncool. Because the rich people come in, the musicians can't afford it, they move out. And uh, it just changes the whole thing. It does. Bob, thanks for being on, man. I I, I love you. And 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 again, your your new book is the right place at the right time. It's a great read. Thank you very much for the for, for the book. Right place, right time. Oh, yeah. and I just heard it's going to be out in paperback in the fall. Oh, nice. nice. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. If I see my face in an airport bookshop, I will be. That will be total total success. <laughs> it, let's get let okay. Let's let's put it out there in the universe. Let's get Bob Gruen's book in the Hudson News. Okay. Yes. I mean, if anybody's yes. watching this who who's the buyer for Hudson News, yeah. let's do it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Right place, right time. I mean, that's the story of my life. It's you know, people ask me how I do it and. It's not something I plan. Um, you have to be in the right place at the right time, but then you have to do the right thing. Right. Uh, right. You have to take advantage of the situation, and that's what I've always done. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Bob Gruen. This has been live from Nerdville. <laughs>